Welcome to Getting Into Information Security, where we talk with InfoSec professionals and learn how they got into the field. I'm your host, Eamon Elswa. My guest today is Robin Stewart. Years of being a paralegal, I think like a lawyer, and that's helped me very well too. Robin is a veteran cybercrime investigator and contributing author to the Handbook for Information Security by Wiley. Are you enthusiastic? Are you curious? Do you have at least some basic foundational knowledge that we can build on? Are you self-driven? And do you play well with others? She's also a debut author in cybercrime fiction with a short story in the Sisters in Crime NorCal anthology called Thoughtlines, which is due out in early 2019. She consults on all things cybersecurity for Fortune 100 companies, television shows, including the BBC and Now This News. She was a significant contributor to the Tech Museum of Innovation's acclaimed Cyber Detectives interactive installation, one of the museum's most popular permanent exhibits, which earned praise from the Obama administration. I've been there myself, and it's pretty cool. You may have noticed that Robin is also a cybercrime author. Uh, Her work is debuting in 2019. We had a whole conversation about that, and I'm going to release that as a bonus episode. It's really worth catching. I'm also going to leave links for her first work that's going to be released in the show notes. Of course, uh, follow her on Twitter and everything like that to stay up to date on other works that are coming out. It's just a really amazing thing of finding all this creativity among all the InfoSec professionals out there. So it's really cool. So I'd love to get to know more about you, why you listen, what brought you to the show, what you're looking to get out of the show. All right. Enjoy the episode. Robin, thanks for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Great. So maybe you could tell us a little about yourself, what you do today, and how you got into the field. Okay. So what I do today is threat research, which I liken to sort of a cyber criminology. So what Mm -hmm. I do is I study the ways and means of bad guys and how they do what they do, kind of visit the same haunts that they go to on the dark web, and basically know your enemy, understanding the adversary. And then that helps me to come up with new and creative ways to disrupt their operations and to make them unsuccessful. Um, So like the old joke that you don't have to be the fastest runner when you're being chased by a bear. You just have to Mm -hmm. run faster than the other guy. So (laughs) we apply the same sort of uh, principles in my industry to raising the bar on criminals so that they will give up on us and go off to somebody who's not quite as equipped. Gotcha. And then we don't just ignore them, though. I also participate in a number of efforts among peer groups. So the same way that criminals band together and work together on exploit development and discuss new ways to attack, good guys get together and share information across companies, across industries, across governments, across countries to share what we all know about different adversaries to help serve the greater good and fight the good fight. Great. Some of those groups, some are public, some are private groups, I would assume. Correct. And how did you get into the field? So it's kind of a funny story. Mm -hmm. I was a paralegal a million years ago and kind of at a crossroads. I uh, had topped out in my interest and also the pay. So I was thinking, well, I really enjoy research. That's what I was basically doing at that point. A lot of my research skills were taught to me by lawyers. Mm -hmm. And so that's why my Google tends to work a little bit differently than other people's Google. (laughs) So (laughs) I I, I find things that other people won't find because I look at things differently. Right. I was taught to do this kind of stuff in an opposition research kind of way. 
And when I was at the last law firm where I worked, I had gotten kind of bored. We were between massive trials. And our IT group, which consisted of two guys, were transitioning the network from a flat open network to one where it was a hierarchical model for the first time. Back in the Windows NT days, they were rolling out NT and it was nice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Tells you how long ago this was. Um, (laughs) It was the first time passwords were being introduced on endpoints. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the different computers for the uh, paralegals and the the secretaries and the lawyers. And I was just goofing around, hanging out in their office. They had this little cubicle corner office where they had all sorts of equipment and stuff. And they were talking to me about the wonders and joys of passwords. And I'm like, so if I were to say, try to guess the managing partner's password, you guys are going to stop me. I mean, this is what you guys are doing, right? And they're like, yeah, of course. (laughs) So I said, okay. (laughs) And I went and talked to the managing partner's admin. I think we just had a cup of coffee or something. Came back and I said, okay, let me try to the IT guys. And they said, have at it. And within my first try, I got in to the managing partner's email and his files and M&A stuff and witness stuff. And they're like, okay, how'd you do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, well, I talked to his secretary and learned the names of his family members and that he's super close with his daughter. So I guessed that his password would be his daughter's name. And sure enough, I was right. Nice. So, there you go. Yeah. So they said, okay then we're going to introduce password complexity. And I said, what's that? Yeah. (laughs) And they said, that's where we're going to have to have letters and numbers. And I said, okay, great, go for it. And then, you know, company-wide, everybody has to strengthen their passwords, blah, blah, blah. So they asked me to try again. And again, I got in on the first try because I guessed the password would be managing partner's daughter's name plus her birthday. Mm Mm-hmm. So we kept playing this game going around and around and around to see how hard it would be for me to break into various points around the network. And this was all on in my spare time. And every single thing that I tried, I would get in within like three or four tries. I think the hardest thing was a four timer. Nice. And so that's when one of the guys said, you are definitely in the wrong line of work. <laughs> and I said, well, what line of work should I be in? And they said, you should be doing this. And I said, wait, people get paid for this? Right. I had no idea (laughs) that basically what I was doing was penetration testing. Yeah. So they helped me find a program through UC Extension here in the Bay Area through UC Berkeley. And I do not have a college degree. Mm -hmm. I'm now uh, kind of proud of that, actually. Uh, But I did do this semester-long course to learn about computer networks because I knew absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I went through basically the MCSE, the Microsoft Certification Boot Camp, but it was a semester long deep dive. So in retrospect, it kind of blended elements of the computer TIA program with the Microsoft Boot Camp. So it was really good. It was a good foundational course. Yeah. And prepared me to take the MCSC tests. At that time, it was, I think there were five tests that I had to take. Okay. I ended up quitting my job. I was trying to do both at the same time. And then when I got to the testing point, that's when I quit my job so I could study for the tests and pass them all. And 
Then came the fun part of being somebody who was, how old was I? I think I was 30, starting a new career, completely new career. Scary. And Yeah. And so I was answering ads on Craigslist. And I think... What did the job descriptions look at that time? Because that's still the InfoSec industry was still young, right? So... <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't actually even looking for information security specifically because oh, okay. the industry was so new mm -hmm. that there weren't any jobs, really. Right. So I did actually start off looking for security. And the whole reason I got interested in security as a discipline, besides the fact that I was good at it, was when I was talking to the guys at the, the law firm. Mm -hmm. One afternoon, I was reading the paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, mm -hmm. and they had done a profile on Deloitte and Touche at that time their newest practice of digital forensics. Right. And I was reading about what they did for a living. And I'm like, this sounds so cool. And so that's when I was like, I went to one of the guys and said, how do I do this? Nice. So, But starting out when you were looking for jobs, you were just trying to get into IT in general. Is exactly. That right? Yeah, exactly. And so I was figuring that I would have to start off doing something like help desk because that seemed to be the everybody that I quizzed in my class and also the IT guys that I had worked with at the law firm. That seemed to be the path, but I didn't want to do that if I didn't have to, because I have zero patience with, with uh, <laughs> things like, did you turn on your computer? I'm just not cut out for that kind of thing. I'm you not mean that nice. the foot pedal? Yeah. The, pedal. the mouse is a foot pedal, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I got a, a fair number of interviews doing the Craigslist thing. And what they were looking for at that time, I just ignored requirements for the most part and just applied to everything that sounded interesting from a company perspective. So I wasn't really looking so much at the job descriptions themselves because I didn't honestly understand a lot of the stuff. Okay. What I was looking at was interesting companies. And one of the companies that I came closest to getting hired at first, it was CNET, actually. Okay. The media company. I thought that would be super cool to do, like, you know, IT support at a media company, because then it kind of would marry two interests, one being writing and one being technology. Mm -hmm. And they passed me over, but they were very, very nice about it. And then that same day, I got contacted by a headhunter who found my resume on Monster or one of those mm -hmm. and brought me in for an interview on the basis of the structure of my resume. Oh. It wasn't because of the content. It was because of the structure and a five, or about a 10-minute conversation that I had with her. Okay. And later she told me that the whole reason that she wanted to work with me after speaking to me was my level of enthusiasm. Mm. Because even though I knew absolutely nothing, I was super, super enthusiastic and asked a ton of questions. Right. And what she did for a living was technical staffing and support. So this was a very good alignment here. And she was the one who sent me out to an interview at a financial institution. Okay. She worked with a lot. And she was uh, very good friends with the hiring manager that I met with. And that story is kind of silly too. I was like an hour late to the interview because oh, of, wow. yeah, it was a daylight savings time snafu. Okay. Uh, but the manager was 
she she thought it was funny. So that, that was good. That's good. That's good. She yeah. was forgiving about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I went in there like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I blew this before I even started. Mm-hmm. But that actually mm-hmm. made me relax. So when I got to the interview, it was the first time I'd ever seen the stereotypical cubicle farm with oh. the conference rooms and the glass walls and stuff. Yeah. And I thought, oh, what a horrible way to work. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and now we all you didn't we all long for those days oh no 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 in the law world you didn't see much of that <laughs> uh, no no in law everybody had an office except for the admins gotcha because of the sensitivity of the information that we were all right. working with and uh, organization so with working as a paralegal i worked with tons literally tons of paper and mm-hmm. so in order to keep it all uh, you know, evidence and depositions and all that crap. Yeah. Somewhat organized that my office was just a wall of boxes. And right. So when I get to this financial institution, I see yeah. cubicles and I'm like, oh, this, this is kind of weird, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. And because I had already been late and figured that I had nothing to lose at this point anymore, yeah. I kind of just turned it into a conversation mm-hmm. and wanted to learn. Okay. And I figured I could use the practice. And the interview took place in a conference room where one entire wall was a whiteboard. And I was asking as many questions as I was being asked. We were supposed to meet for an hour. We ended up talking for two hours. And by the end of that two hour period, the hiring manager had mapped out the entire network and all of their defenses. Because even though it wasn't a security job, it was for a platform engineer, which is basically engineering a standard trying to think of an easy way to put this, Uh, a standard way for all of the computers to be distributed depending on your role and responsibility. Mm. So there were what they call gold images that were being built. And then when you got hired on as a certain, in a certain capacity, Mm -hmm. you got the gold image for your computer that fit the role. And the platform engineers were the ones who created those and kept the gold image and tested interoperability with applications and hardware, blah, blah, blah. Gotcha. I didn't learn any of that until I was actually on the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but, but in the interview, I made it clear that my interest was in the infosec space. And so again, the hiring manager was game to tell me what she knew about what they had in terms of safety precautions and how this platform engineering role would feed into that greater security space. And like I said, at the end of the interview, she had drawn a network map, given me the names of the vendors that they used for various endpoint security, firewalls, egress and ingress, monitoring and filtering. And I sat back at the end and she said, any more questions? And I said, no. And I'm staring at the wall. (laughs) And I said, you know what? You probably shouldn't have answered any of my questions, or at least you shouldn't have done this. Yeah. And she was like, why? And I said, well, because you don't know that I'm actually here for an interview. I mean, this is a bank. Mm-hmm. You just told me how to break in. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. she, started, she burst out laughing. And she said, okay, well, thanks very much. This has been entertaining. And I thought, okay, sure. So I blew it. Right. And uh, I'm driving home. And by the time I got home, there was an offer waiting for me on my voicemail. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I got the job. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, would you have said that if you thought you still had a chance at the job? Um, probably. 
Mm-hmm. My life ethos is the worst thing that people can say to me is no. Right. I mean, anything is worth a try. Yeah. And if I don't succeed on the first try, then I'll change up what I do. And by the time I had gotten to this interview, I had already been through a dozen interviews with all different types of people, all different levels of friendliness and receptivity to my personality. And also in my background, I was a temp way, way, way back in the day when I was in high school to make extra money. I would, uh, my mother was actually the manager for a temporary help agency. And she used to send me out on temp jobs that nobody else would take during mm-hmm. the summer months. And that was how I made money for spending money for, you know, high school kid. Right. Um, so I got really used to being adaptable okay. and just being dropped into a situation and getting very comfortable very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that serves me well in interviews, in job interviews. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty flexible. And also because this was such a new thing to me and I was so excited about it, enthusiasm really counted with most of the people that I spoke to. I mean, I would say 90% of the people that I interviewed with, they all said, wow, you're super enthusiastic, but except for the bank who said, you're enthusiastic, you ask questions, and you seem like somebody that we could teach because mm-hmm. their attitude in hiring me was, yeah, I don't have the experience, but I'm obviously curious, obviously easy to get along with and willing to learn. Yeah. And so, And it was a contract position anyway, so if they hated me, they could cut me at any time. Okay. Yeah. And instead, after two months, they converted me to FTE. Yeah. Companies uh, will take more risk on a contract. Yep. So that's good. I mean, so what advice do you have for hiring managers? Because have you noticed that, you know, you've got a lot of enthusiastic, but right, not enough experience. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be a big issue right now where you have this catch 22, people really interested in the field and are trying to learn, but they need the experience to actually get the job. Right. So do you have any advice for hiring managers? Yeah, I do, actually. I'm in that position now and have been for quite some time. I've been in this field now for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so I've obviously hired quite a few people. Yeah. I've been a people manager. I've managed teams. I've led teams. And I've been, if not directly, indirectly involved in hiring for most of my career. Yeah. And what I see now in hiring decisions is a bias towards degrees and advanced degrees. Oh, and you still see that now, huh? Yeah. Okay. It's getting better than it was. Like five years ago, it was really, really bad where mm-hmm. the recruiters would be like, oh, nope, you don't have a PhD. We're not talking to you. And I'm like, really? Then I wouldn't have gotten in the door. Yeah. And so fortunately, that has started to change a little bit. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is don't look so much at the degrees, the the certifications. What I am more interested in as a people manager is, Mm -hmm. and part of the playing well with others is integrity. And so I have a couple of questions that I ask in interviews that kind of screen for integrity. One of my favorites is actually a video that a security researcher put on YouTube where he takes apart a card skimmer at an ATM in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, hey, look at this. I jiggle the thing, I pull it apart, and now I'm going to show you how I'm discovering all of these great things about this skimmer, blah, 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 blah. Well, all of that is well and good, except what he did, from my perspective as a digital forensics expert, is he tampered with evidence mm. instead of doing the right thing, which would have been 
call a cop. You discover that you've just found a card skimmer, call a cop mm -hmm. and let the cop deal with it. It's not your job. It's it. And now all of the people who could have had their bank accounts made whole have right. to fight tampering of evidence as a defense by uh -huh. the other side. So that's something that I bring with me too, is years of being a paralegal, I think like a lawyer. And that's helped me very well too. Would you say that that mistake would be a lack of knowledge or a part of integrity? It was ego. Ah, okay. And that's something that I do screen for. Yeah. So if people in interviews, I will back them into verbal corners so fast if they don't say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I will keep going until they either give up or just start lying and creating all these like bald faced lies. And, and yeah. Like, okay. Nope. 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 We're done. Yeah. Get out. Yeah. Ego is uh, a big problem. Yeah. It really is. So, yeah, actually, mm -hmm. to the point about where people, hiring managers, should be looking. Mm -hmm. At my previous employer, I was very active with a group called Year Up. Okay. And Year Up is an internship program that brings in kids primarily from, I think the criteria is you have to be 18 and in school. So that can mean high school if you're a senior that graduates late because, um, mm -hmm. you know, winter babies and all that, or in an academic program. So not necessarily a four-year college, but you can be in a certification program, you can be in a trade school, you can be at a community college, or like I said, your last year of high school. And the kids that join that program tend to be from underrepresented communities. And I really liked working with them. Okay. And the internships tend to be six months to a year. Mm -hmm. So it's a longer program than your typical summer intern that you have for three months or whatever. That's nice. Yeah. And so it's a chance for the kid to see different parts of the field. So what we did at the previous employer was when we had our interns, you'd have your primary group that you were working with. But we would actually encourage them to shadow, job shadow other people in the same security department mm -hmm. so that they could learn about all the different disciplines, everything from intrusion detection to policy and compliance to offensive security and pen testing. So if a kid was like, hey, I want to be a manager one day, they would go and say, hey, shadow a manager, shadow the CIO if that's what you want to do. Right. But it was all about exposure. So that's something that more companies are starting to do now. They're more willing to look in the less obvious places to hire people. And I would encourage younger people or people in career transition who are interested in getting into security to look in less obvious places. You know, the, the linear approach of going to a four-year college or a master's program or something like that, that's all well and good if you're willing to take on the debt honestly, to do that. But mm -hmm. it's not the only way. Right. It's not the only way. Yeah. yeah. And for hiring managers like me, I appreciate the more creative approaches. And in this line of work, particularly around threat research and applied science, creativity actually matters a lot. Mm -hmm. So if you're an out-of-the-box thinker, that's awesome. That's a big added bonus. Mm -hmm. And if you can demonstrate that by the way that you got to me in the first place 
through the recruiter, then I might look at you more than another company would. Yeah. And I like what you mentioned about you were just ignoring the job descriptions and focusing on the company. Yeah. Where, you know, there's at a particular company, there might be more opportunity, you know, to shift. You might not get the InfoSec job right off the bat. Yeah, exactly. Like the case in point where I started. The financial institution, I started as a platform engineer. It was not security at all. Mm -hmm. And the way that I transitioned into security was when I overheard somebody that turned out to be the vice president of security Mm -hmm. talking to one of her managers, I heard the word firewall (laughs) and I was just getting coffee and she and, and her underling were talking about building out a new team and I'm eavesdropping just relentlessly and became more and more obvious about the fact that I was eavesdropping on their conversation until I was literally standing right next to the vice president <laughs> with my coffee in hand. And I said, that's what I want to do. And they both looked at me like, who the hell are you? <laughs> and, that's so, and I waited until it was semi-polite time to interrupt them. Okay. But <laughs> when I said that, this vice president said, what do you mean by that? And I said, this, this, what you guys are talking about, security. That's why I got into the whole technology field in the first place. And and I just went off. I just verbally nodded all over them. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. And then she said to the guy who she was talking to about structuring a new IDS team, she said, I want you to talk to this woman and hear her out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the the guy Mm -hmm. looked at me like, oh, dear God. Okay, fine. And so we set up a meeting that afternoon. And he said, okay, so my boss obviously wants me to talk to you. So what is it that you want to do? And and what kind of experience do you have in this? And I said, I have no experience at all in this. And he was like, well, that was honest. Uh. And I said, so what kind of experience would you want to see? And what would you want me to do? And he said, well, do you have a home network? And I said, a what? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so he was explaining to me about you know, setting up a home network and essentially a honeypot outside of the home router to expose it to threats on the internet, how to set up IP tables to Mm -hmm. record all of the badness that was traveling around there out in the world. He gave me this laundry list of homework, books to read, ways to capture information. And I'm taking furious notes the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, great. And so when I do this, I should come back to you. And he looked at me like, yeah, kid, sure. Yeah, you you can uh, you done that. And six weeks later, I did. Okay. Yeah, and I said, "Hey, look, look at all this stuff that I found." And I went over. So you had logs and everything. You were capturing oh, yeah. logs. Okay. Yeah. I learned what a honeypot was. I read the mm-hmm. the book he recommended was Hacking Exposed. I read it cover to cover. Nice. And did some of the exercises, and I also fit in a SANS course, the GSEC, uh, Security Essentials. Mm-hmm in that time. Mm -hmm. And I had passed part of it. I must have done the practical first. Okay. And then after you do the practical, which is a demonstration that you have mastered the knowledge, then they allow you to take the test. And I think I had just passed the practical, which was basically just a white paper. And so I go back to this manager and I show him all of my work, basically. And he said, wait, what? You did it? Nice. And I said, well, yeah, that's what you told me to do. Mm -hmm. And So he arranged for a transfer. That's awesome. And I became employee number three in the InfoSec department for the intrusion detection team there. That's great. Yeah. That's a combination of enthusiasm and just perseverance is what I'm getting from that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I really enjoy 
giving back mm-hmm. and mentoring. And when I'm choosing mentees, because everywhere I work, people know that I really like to develop talent, mm-hmm. but I'm picky about who I'll work with. Right. Because I've been burned by, you know, hey, I'm yeah. going to be super you know, optimistic about the outcome. And then I end up wasting my time because somebody doesn't do the work or right. they expect me to like give them a brain dump. And now they're an expert. One mm-hmm. kid really insulted me. He's like, I've got an hour. Can you teach me everything you know? <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was when I decided, okay, I need to uh, have a threshold here and establish a uh, sure. sort of a gateway. Yeah. And that's when I adopted the same methodology that the manager, my first security manager gave to me. And that is, I'm going to give you some homework. You come back to me when you're done. If you actually do it, I will work with you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that people who are claiming to be clamoring for the experience and the opportunity, mm-hmm. more than 50% of the time don't do it. Right. And I'm like, wow, you are turning your back on the opportunity of a lifetime. But okay, it's your choice. You know, I'm not going to force you. If you don't want to come under my wing, that's fine. Yeah. But if you do, hey, let's go play. Yeah, I feel the same way. So when I'm trying to help someone, I'm like, I'm not going to spoon feed you information. I'm going to guide you. I need to see some initiative from you before I open the floodgates, right? Exactly. I'm willing to share. I love sharing. When I started teaching, I became more sensitive to that, you know, where people are texting in my class or whatever. And I was just yeah. like, what are you doing? Like, it's so funny because, you know, I look back as how I was a bad student. <laughs> and, you know, I feel bad for old Eamon yeah. <laughs> and, and how I was. So Yeah, I wasn't always a great student myself. It really depended if, uh, if the teacher was engaging and if yeah. the subject was interesting to me, I was a great student. And if not, uh, not so much. Yeah. Let me ask you, you told us about kind of your first digital hack. Can you remember a time when you have your like first hack in life, maybe when you were younger and might not necessarily be a digital hack? Just what's your first hack? First hack in life. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you could talk about. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know that I've ever knowingly broken the law, but this has nothing to do with that. When I was in junior high, we had you know, student body elections coming up. Mm-hmm. And I started to see posters going up for somebody that I wasn't all that fond of running for student body president. And it was one of the popular kids. Right. And so it was kind of a foregone conclusion that that person would win. Okay. And I thought, I wonder if I could upset the balance here. Hmm. I had never run for any sort of student council ever. And I was just like, huh, I wonder if I could persuade people to vote for me, even though they may or may not know me. Where I grew up, there were two main elementary schools and two main junior high schools. And then this year that I'm talking about, all of a sudden, the junior high schools were blended into one. Mm. And so nobody knew everybody. And there was a, a bit of discomfort from everybody because, oh, all of a sudden I'm in this big pool of kids that, and I, I'm no longer uh, the only popular one or my popular group is now running up against this other popular group. And so I thought- The pond is a little bigger. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, huh, I wonder if I could use that to my advantage and if I could beat this person. Right. And so I ran. 
I ran for, oh, wow. I ran for student body president what just to see. Well, it wasn't because I didn't really think about the outcome. It was really more about the race okay. and the experience and manipulating human behavior and right. seeing if I could influence the outcome. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that that's basically social engineering, right? I was wildly successful and I ended up winning. Wow. Yeah. And it, nice. yeah, yeah. All of a sudden. <laughs> <Now what? laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm like, oh, wait, I have to do stuff now. I have to be like at school after school. <laughs> what? Oh, no. What did I get myself into? That's hilarious. That is amazing. Yeah. So I've done a lot of human hacking and also as a paralegal, Mm -hmm. like I said, my Google works better than other people's Google because I learned how to do online searches using the LexisNexis database, which is Mm -hmm. the kind of the gold standard of everything you want to know about anything. Right. Most of the use at law firms is to look up case precedent and uh, Mm -hmm. personal information on people. I used it for that, but also for doing other types of research, so not strictly legal research and not strictly researching witnesses or opposing parties, but also understanding their backgrounds, like where they came from. So if somebody came from a small town that I had never heard of in a part of the country I wasn't familiar with, I studied up on that Mm -hmm. to understand what motivates people in their backgrounds and figure out how to use it against them sounds harsh, Mm -hmm. but that was basically why my job was to poke holes in expert witnesses and to undermine their authority. And (laughs) it sounds really horrible saying all this, but it was really fun to do. And so I ended up with a set of skills where I observed things a little bit differently than my fellow technical peers. Mm -hmm. Like I can tell you after spending some time with you, if you're right or left-handed and not because I see you right, but I'll see other types of behaviors. This actually just happened this week where I was in a bathroom and it sounds terrible. I was in a bathroom that there are three sinks Mm -hmm. and this one woman was at the far left. I was at the far right. And it occurred to me that I always saw her at the far left sink whenever we ran into each other in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And so I finally said to her, hey, there's somebody I knew. So I said, are you left-handed by chance? And she said, yeah, how did you know that? Right. Because she was just standing there washing her hands. Right. And I said, because you're always at that sink. And I usually go to the right sink and I'm right-handed. And I was just testing a theory. Yeah. (laughs) He said, wow, well done. And it was somebody whose job was offensive security. So she was like, well done. (laughs) Nice, nice. Yeah, noticing the little things. Yes. Very important. So Robin, what do you suggest for those looking to enter the field, specifically as a malware researcher? Do you find the bar a little higher? You know, what could they do? I mean, you know, we had a lot of open source information out there. As for getting hired as a malware researcher, what do you recommend? That is more of an academic challenge. Again, I don't feel like you have to go through any sort of formal training, but it helps Mm. if you don't know where else to start. But there are so many resources available. Is there a book in particular that you found as a de facto standard of the Bible for malware research? That's a tough one for me to answer because they started to come out while I was doing that work. Mm -hmm. And 
It also depends on the foundational knowledge that you have. If you don't understand the stack, then you're not going to really get a lot out of things like the shell coders handbook. That's one of the standards for reversing and exploit discovery. And it's a really good resource on understanding malware. That and also there's a book called Reversing. I'm actually looking at it on my bookshelf right now. Mm-hmm. which was probably one of the first ones. So in my mind is probably one of the better ones because mm-hmm. it did kind of bring you up through understanding the execution and first the delivery and then the execution of, of malware and the intent and then discovery and reverse engineering. Mm-hmm. And there's two different ways to do reversing. There's behavioral and then there's pure analytics. So Mm. where you're looking at the code and stepping through, you know, you've reversed the code in something like a a debugger or Ida Pro or something like that. And you're looking at the assembly instructions because there is no way to convert compiled code into readable uncompiled code. So you really do need to understand the constructs of assembly. Mm -hmm. So if you have that foundational knowledge, then you can be off and running on a self-driven journey of using books and videos and things to learn. Most hiring at that level, you will be tested. Mm -hmm. So you might be given a piece of malware or even a benign piece of code and asked to reverse it. Sometimes there are Easter eggs, which is a little hidden surprise. Yeah. And you get bonus points for finding the Easter eggs, that kind of thing. Okay. It's challenging, but it's fun. Yeah. What are some behavioral traits, do you think, that someone, they want to enter the field and would make them really successful in in the malware research field? A high threshold for tedium, I think, is really important. (laughs) And it sounds funny, but it's true. Mm. Because when you're looking for one of these things that's not like the other, it takes a long, long time. And the newer you are to the field, the longer it takes. Mm. So... First, I learned the analytical piece. I actually taught myself assembly by writing a program all in assembly just to prove to myself that I understood it. Mm-hmm. And then I jumped over to behavioral analysis because that's more tactical and more applicable to um, mm-hmm. defending. So if you're looking to get a job at a security company, you need to know both. And you really need to know mm-hmm. the code side. So I would say study up on assembly. And I would also encourage people to learn all three of the major operating systems because there is, you know, there's so much already on Windows operating systems, even though they've changed and evolved over time. Mm -hmm. That body of knowledge is pretty well covered. What's less covered is Mac OS, mobile OS, and Linux. Mm -hmm. And so if you can become an expert at one of those, that's going to increase your market value. especially Mac, because Mac adoption has dramatically increased over the last five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And there's not as many tools available yet Mm -hmm. for securing Macs. And there's also still that that misunderstanding slash conceit that Macs don't get infected, when in fact they do. My first ever virus was on a Mac. So I would do that. But behavioral analysis is actually a lot of fun. That was one that I had more fun with because... That's where you're actually executing the code. And building a safe environment to do that is absolutely paramount. So something that's not internet connected, 
where you have full control of the device that you're running the code on. And you could be emulating it in a you know virtual machine. Mm-hmm. But what I found to be more accurate in assessing the behaviors, because so many pieces of malware will behave differently in a virtual environment mm-hmm. than they will on what's called bare metal, right. which is like, you know, running on a real operating system. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of laptops that I keep at home in my home lab that are made to be reimaged. So mm-hmm. how I studied malware for work and for play was running it. And at the same time, I had a couple of programs that would show me all the system changes that occurred while the malware was running. Mm-hmm. And I also would run malware in a bare metal environment without the crutch of these programs that would show me the changes where I would go in and try to identify all the changes myself. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I don't want to say that's what made me so great at it, but that really helped a lot. It also helps a lot that I have a photographic memory. Mm-hmm. So that gives me an edge where other people don't have that. So it's easy for me to look at, say, the System32 file on a Windows machine and pick out what changed. It's going to be harder for people who don't recognize things at a glance and say, oh, yeah, well, this is, these are all the files that should be in System32. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Robin, thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And I, uh, I found it wonderful talking to you and learning about your experience. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. This was fun.